And a pleasant good afternoon to you, Daily Dose of Hoops podcast number two. After we had John Fanta on New Year's Day, Jaden Daly here with you with another guest from the world of New York Metropolitan Area College Basketball. This time we're going to go to the Garden State side of the Hudson River for someone who has a better pulse on New Jersey basketball than probably anyone else in the state. We're going to talk some Rutgers and some Seton Hall and some general impressions of New Jersey hoops with the man known as New Jersey Hoops Haven. He covers Seton Hall and Rutgers for the Asbury Park Press in Gannett, New Jersey. That's Jerry Carino. Jerry, thanks for coming on spending some time with us. Hope you had a great New Year. Yes, Jordan. A, a good New Year. 2021 can only get better, although I got to say it's been a burn the tape week here in New Jersey. Not a very good uh, couple of days for our high majors, but the big picture, both teams are playing well, and it is exciting time to turn the page. In, indeed it is, and you mentioned burning the tape, and we'll take the temperature on the two major programs in New Jersey. We'll start with Rutgers, currently ranked 15th in the polls, as high as number 11 earlier in the season. Came off a heartbreaking two-point loss at the rack against Iowa last Saturday. Followed that up with an uncharacteristically flat performance from a Steve Peichel team, 68-45, to 45, the loss at the Breslin Center against Michigan State Tuesday night. It was a game in which Rutgers was really unable to get shots to fall. The free throw shooting reared its ugly head once again. And now having lost two in a row and three out of four, if you count the Ohio State game in Columbus right before Christmas. Jerry, I have to ask, is the sky falling in and around Piscataway? And if not, what is there to be encouraged by? Yeah, no, I don't think it's falling. I think the, the Big Ten is the problem. I mean, the league is just so good. It's the best league in college basketball, and I think it's the best the Big Ten the Big Ten ever has been. I would say it's the deepest league, Jaden, since since the Big East of about 10 years ago when, you know, the Big East was maxed out at 16 teams, and I think one year got 11 teams into the NCAA tournament. Like, this Big Ten reminds me of that league in terms of its depth. So, you know, you're going to take some lumps, and there's going, to be, there's going to be nights when you sing the blues. Rutgers had one of those nights. To me, it was a combination of Michigan State was desperate for a quality win. They had started to turn the corner. You know, Izzo is, to me, the best game coach in America. Uh, I do think that Rutgers was in for a little – they had a little heartbreaking hangover from the Iowa Classic. And these things sometimes – can sort of snowball so that's what happened there uh and i but i do think the one issue that Rutgers does have to iron out is the free throw shooting it's really historically bad at under 60 percent and they don't have listen they're not gonna they don't have to shoot 80 percent but they have to shoot a respectable percentage and it's it's gonna impact who's on the floor at the end of the games for them so that has to get fixed it's fixable i think because look at Seton Hall, they've turned it around, but but until that happens, that's going to be a weakness. But no, this is still a very good team. And you and I have been around the rack for the past couple of years, you much longer than I have before this site started really getting a little more into Rutgers to see Steve Peichel transform this program and really build it up. We, we've gotten in on the ground floor. What are some of the early impressions this season when you look at the core that has come back, the freshman class that has come in and blended in with the upperclassmen on this team, the Geo Bakers and Ron Harper Juniors of the world, also getting contributions from Cliff O'Marui, from Dean Reber, who has been a great role player in the first couple games of the Big Ten schedule. What are your early impressions of just how this team has come together? It's just really a veterans team. You know, the class, the, the freshman class's contributions are to be determined. Uh, Cliff Omarui, as you indicated, he's supposed to have a big role on this team. He's been hurt. He's, he's four straight games he's missed. So I don't know when he's coming back. Um, the other guys are, are right now really are just practice players and maybe a little bit of role playing from Dean Bieber while Cliff is out. That's going to be the freshman class is mostly a future project. Uh, it's a, This is about the upperclassmen. And the program Pico has built is, is a developmental program he finds guys who are either under the radar or you know need some tweaks um, overlooked hungry and coaches them up into a, into a whole individually get better and a cohesive whole 
that's better than the sum of its parts. And I think you're seeing the fruition of that through the first part of this season. Veteran guys who have gotten better and are on the same page. What this Rutgers team does better than any other Rutgers team I can remember is they share the ball fantastically. The passing is super. People say, well, how are they, how are they shooting so much better from three? You know what? They're getting a lot of open looks because they work the ball and they space so well and they make the extra pass. They do a lot of high IQ things to get open looks. So that's to me what would help them shoot better. And that's a product of program building, developmental, team building basketball. That's what you're seeing from this group. And it's really impressive when it's clicking. We're talking to Jerry Torino, Dunette, New Jersey, the Asbury Park Press covering Rutgers and Seton Hall. We're staying with the Scarlet Knights here and the follow-up on the point you just made, Jerry, the player development that Steve Peichel has been renowned for, even when he was at Stony Brook, has shown once again on this roster, Geo Baker, a senior, and you mentioned sharing the ball. Paul Mulcahy and Jacob Young have chipped in as well. And now Caleb McConnell, who ran some point guard in stretches last season, is back in the lineup as well. So you have four capable ball handlers, and the beneficiaries of that have been Ron Harper Jr., who looks like a first-team All-Big Ten player and maybe even an All-American. You and I have mentioned this on social media throughout the season. Ron's three-point stroke has really taken off, and that's just a testament to the work he's put in and the work that Peichel and his staff have put in. Yeah, uh, here's what I would say. I heard this phrase yesterday. Five-star attitude is more important than a five-star rating. And – you know, the, the whole recruiting industrial complex has everybody all in, all caught up in how many stars do you have, where you ranked in your class in the top 150. And to me, a lot of that is bogus. A lot of it is bogus. It's guesswork. It's looking at kids in a showcase environment where, you know, there's not really a team concept and there's no scouting and there's no pressure on the line, you know, these these weekend showcases or these AAU games weekends where they play a bunch of games in a row. That's not, to me, that's not, doesn't translate necessarily to how you're going to succeed in in college basketball in the team concept. And so Michael has looked outside those lines a little bit. Yeah. There's, there's some four-star guys in here. You know, Montez Mathis was a four-star guy. Paul Mulcahy was a four-star recruit. Um, Cliff O'Marie was four stars, but you know, most of these guys were, were grossly overlooked Ron Harper was recruited by nobody outside of New Jersey. Geo Baker had one other high major offer from uh, Kansas State, I believe. Uh, Miles Johnson was, was Ivy League bound before Rutgers got involved. So he has an eye for guys who, who yeah, they can play, of course, but fundamentally sound, physically capable, high IQ, hard worker, and let the coach fill in the rest. So it's a that's a pleasure to see. Ron Harper is the epitome of that. Uh, he was two stars at the time he was he committed to Rutgers. He eventually got bumped up. Two stars, Jay. The guy is a potential All-American, okay? So, look, he's bought in. He's got talent. Look who his dad is, okay? He's got genes. He, he, but he's bought in, and his coaching staff, his teammates, they've all made him better. So, it, to me, as a basketball uh, purist, as someone who just enjoys the college game, part of the, the sport it's a pleasure to see it really is no doubt and an excellent point there ron harper an underrated recruit the son of a an nba champion a two-star prospect and he's paying dividends now down the road in his junior season talked about as a first team all-conference talent and potential all-american you look at some of the other players on this roster jerry montez mattis is shooting his improved now in lockstep with his defense paul mulcahy has become a little more aggressive in and around the basket and really attacking. Jacob Young's scoring has gone up. What has impressed you most about the companion pieces to Baker and Harper in the lineup? I'll take each of those three guys one at a time. When Montez Mathis got to the Rutgers, look, he was a four-star recruit, very good athlete, good aggressive going to the rim, good defender, always had that stuff. He could not shoot. He couldn't throw the ball in the ocean from the perimeter. His shooting was so bad, and you could, I mean, it was cringeworthy to watch him shoot a three. Look at him now. The guy's confident in his stroke. He's reliable. So he still can attack the 10. He runs the floor well. He's great in the open court, and he's still a top defender. 
But now he has that weapon. He can shoot the ball. That changes the way you have to defend him and the team. So that's a developmental point. Uh, Jacob Young. Jacob Young comes from Texas as this sort of wild, untamed uh, guard where I, I saw him in the summer and they were trying to work him out as, to run the team, right? They were giving him the ball, trying to let him run the team in scrimmage, scrimmage work. And I said, hmm, is he a point guard? And one of the staff said to me, he's got to learn to pass the ball first. Jacob Young just wanted to take shots. He wanted the ball in his hand because he wanted to take shots. So that's a change in mentality. Now he's leading the team in assists. Now Jacob Young is a terrific facilitator. Now he uses his ability to dribble drive and to penetrate to set teammates up. So he takes some he takes some crazy shots every now and then, but that used to be what he did. Now it's just one side thing among many other good things that he does. So Jacob Young has now become a playmaker, which he definitely was not when he got here. Okay, and then Paul Mulcahy. Paul Mulcahy, I watched him in high school. I loved his game in high school. I knew whoever getting him, whoever got him, was getting a, a program plank, a a key key contributor, a glue guy, a winner. But Paul Mulcahy wouldn't shoot the ball last year. He was afraid to shoot the ball. I think part of that was his deference to his older teammates, okay? And that's just team versus mentality guy. Part of that was maybe he was a little intimidated by the physicality of the Big Ten. Uh, that has changed. You've seen him not only shoot the ball, not only look for his shot, but also rejecting other guys, defending better, rebounding. Paul has gotten stronger, he's gotten tougher, he's gotten more aggressive. All three of those guys have transformed who they are, and that's a testament to them and the coaching staff, and that's why Rutgers has made this big leap. And we're talking to Jerry Torino, the Asbury Park Preston at New Jersey, covering Rutgers and Seton Hall among his many talents. Jerry, you look at the front court with Cliff Amarui having sprained his knee against Illinois and not having returned since then. We spoke to Steve Peichel Thursday morning in his pregame conference call, and he said there's still no timetable on when the freshman from Roselle Catholic is going to return to the floor. In his absence, Miles Johnson has stepped up. Mamadou Dukore has been a role player off the bench, as well as Dean Reber. Moat Mad made his return the other day against Michigan State. And when you look at what Rutgers has after Johnson, does it concern you the longer Cliff stays out going into Big Ten play that the depth in the front court may still be a little raw? And if so, how do you overcome that outside of live game situations and just getting more reps? Yeah, it's a depth. That's the depth issue right now that they're facing, right? That's the big issue they're facing um, rotation-wise is they really don't have another big man of Big Ten quality after uh, Miles Johnson, who is foul-prone, although tough and talented. Uh, so, yeah, that's an issue. Uh, what I first want to say, first thing I want to say is you, you cannot, and I heard some of this from fans asking me, can he come back, you know, before he's – before his time. You cannot rush Cliff Omarui back. You cannot mess with a knee, especially the knee of a big man. Any lower body body injury in a big man has to be handled with extra care because these are huge frames. They carry a lot of weight, you know, a lot of bone, a, a lot of limb. So you cannot rush those things. He's a freshman. You don't want to mess him up permanently. So, you know, Geo Baker suffers a high ankle sprain and comes back two and a half weeks later. I mean, that that's pushing it, and Steve Peichel has admitted that he, he took him some time to get back in the swing. But, you know, Baker's got a high pain tolerance. He's a guard. He's a veteran. So they took his word for it that he could come back. But with a big man with a knee, you know, you cannot mess with that. So they're going to have – Cliff's going to be ready when he's ready. Um, in the meantime, they're going to be very matchup dependent. Uh, I don't know this much, Jade, you can do other than – See who you match up against, like the physical teams, like the Ohio States and the the um, Michigan States are going to be tough matchups for Rutgers with just one big man. That's just the way it is. I, you, you can you can force feed Dean Reber and Mag and these other guys, you know, do Corey all the minutes you want, but they're just not they're just not ready to play extended Big Ten minutes, even though Reber has been tough and played really well against Iowa, you know, they're just not ready for that on a consistent basis. So I think you're just going to keep your fingers crossed that the guy heals and then just go matchup to matchup and see what happens. 
you got to shoot the ball well uh, to really, you know, overcome that, I think. But but that's just the way it is right now, and that's life, you know, in sports when guys get hurt. And on top of that, Ron Harper Jr. missed the Purdue game with a sprained ankle, but came back on Saturday against Iowa, toughed it out, and he's back in the lineup. So a blessing there and a bullet dodged that his injury wasn't as serious as initially thought. And that's part of the next man up mentality that both Steve Peichel and his players have talked about. Geo Baker mentioned it in depth after the first game against Ohio state, the commitment to this group of just going out there and overcoming adversity and just putting on a show and a valiant effort every time out. Is there more of a commitment and a sense of togetherness with this group, Jerry, that may not have been there a year ago, two years ago? I think it's always been, the camaraderie's always been pretty good with this group. I mean, a lot of these guys came in together as freshmen. This big junior class, Geo Baker's a natural leader, a welcoming guy. What I would say, though, is when you talk about chemistry, it is a question when you when you when guys are going in and out of the rotation because of injuries. So, for example, uh, Caleb McConnell, okay? So, Caleb McConnell was going to redshirt. He's had a chronic back issues. The, the, the NCAA then says, you know what? There's no no eligibility issues. Everybody needs to play. No penalty. So, now they take the red shirt off. He's feeling better. He comes back. And it's not just – he doesn't just come back in a vacuum. He's taking somebody's minutes, okay? So, in the first game, he takes Paul Mulcahy's minutes. In the second game, he takes – Montez Mathis's minutes, okay? Somebody's minutes are getting lost there. So Rutgers now has a logjam in their backcourt. So this is something Steve Pike has to figure out. Um, and Caleb has rust to shake off. So the results aren't going to show right away. He's missing shots. He's, he's rusty on the offensive end. Yes, he plays hard, and he's a very good defender. And he's a good ball handler. He's a good free throw shooter, which they really need. But Caleb McConnell has rust to shake off. So Steve Pike playing him now. Because this is a long game thing. Because later on, you're going to need him, okay, through the grind of the schedule. And guys with foul trouble and guys with injuries, you're going to need him. And look, he's another piece that's going to help you. You don't have a ton of depth to begin with. So it's Caleb McConnell will be a net plus. At the moment, it's a net minus while he's working his way back in. So that's an issue, and they have to figure that out. And, you know, the other players have to be understanding of, hey, I'm not going to play 35 minutes now. We have five capable guards. And so these are things that they don't automatically happen. Even with the best intentioned guys, you know, guys with great attitudes, they don't automatically happen. So that's a big part of coaching that I think is unsung, making the pieces fit and getting everyone on the same page, especially when guys come in and out of rotations with injuries. And that's something Rutgers is working out right now. We're talking to Jerry Carino of the Asbury Park Preston at New Jersey with an in-depth look at the issues plaguing Rutgers and how the Scarlet Knights have overcome them on the way to a top 15 ranking and a forwardly placed status atop the Big Ten in the upper echelon. We're going to go up the turnpike a little bit now and we'll change from red to blue as this country has in the White House with the upcoming transition of power. That's another issue for another day, but we'll talk about Seton Hall right now. And the Pirates are coming into this weekend off a 36-point loss, an uncharacteristic Big East showing, losing to Creighton on Wednesday night, the final score there in Omaha, 89-53. to The worst Big East defeat for Seton Hall since 2006 when an eventual NCAA tournament-bound Pirates team in Louis Orr's final season lost to UConn. But when you look at how the Pirates came into this game, Jerry, with the big impressive statement against Xavier on the road, really dominating the Musketeers with an explosive first half run. And then the gritty workmanlike typical Kevin Willard victory against Butler last Saturday, they come out and Creighton shoots the lights out. Damian Jefferson had a big night Wednesday night. Was that game against the Blue Jays an aberration as far as this Pirates team is concerned? It was an aberration. I think you're never as good as your best game. You're never as bad as your worst game. Uh, you know, the, the, the Xavier game seemed to look like a Final Four team at Xavier. Uh, against Creighton, they look like, you know, a last place team. So I, neither one is a total picture. Uh, the thing about Creighton is it's just a bad matchup for Seton Hall. It's a bad matchup with uh, defending them with the way Seton Hall's defenders switch uh, at Creighton, having the, you know, five-out type of offense. Uh, it's a bad matchup on the other end. Um, 
you know, trying to set ball screens against Creighton's defense with those guards that Creighton has. So it's just not a good – Seton Hall's lost three straight games to them. Creighton has shredded them defensively all three times, blew them out twice. Uh, you just don't want to see them in the Big East tournament or – ever again <laughs> if you can help it. Uh, they'll get them one more time at home but I knew they were not winning that game I did not think they'd lose by 36 I do think when when one of your when one of your players is riding on the court four minutes into the game has to be carried off that is it definitely deflates a team so that probably had something to do with it Creighton played great it's a potential final four team so I wouldn't read too much into it other than it's a really bad matchup. Um, I would obviously do wonder when can they get Bryce Aiken back. It's going to be a few weeks, I'm sure. Uh, but Seton Hall will be fine. I still think they're NCAA tournament bound. they got a lot going for them. They just have to shake that one off. And, you know, they, Kevin Willard's teams have shown a history of doing that. And you mentioned Bryce Aiken's ankle injury, the second ankle injury already this season for the graduate transfer from Harvard. Rolled his ankle in the season opener at Louisville and then just came back not too long ago. In his absence, Shavar Reynolds has handled the point guard responsibilities very well. What about him, Jerry, has made him so valuable? We know his story. The former walk-on earned a scholarship, has a knack for making clutch shots in big moments. How admirably has Shavar Reynolds performed? And do you feel that maybe he's being asked to do a little too much? in light of the circumstances? So two things, two answers to your question. One is, I think it's one of the all-time great New Jersey college basketball stories, all-time great. I cannot remember a walk-on. There has been none in the Big East era. Maybe there was one in the 70s. I cannot remember a walk-on who has ever risen to prominence on Seton Hall like this. I don't remember one in New Jersey uh, college basketball. I mean, he was a Division three recruit who you know, wasn't even really invited to walk on. He had to sort of fight his way onto the team, play his way onto the team in a tryout. And uh, look where he is. I mean, he's a big, he's quality point guard, and he's hit a lot of game-winning shots. He's made a lot of winning plays for them, and he's played terrific defense for a number of years. Um, all that said, you know, there's, there's not there are not many players who are capable of running a Big East team for 35 minutes a game. Very few, maybe Marcus Zagorowski, but he's being asked to do that, and it's obviously too much. I mean, it's you know the plan was to have him and and Bryce Aiken, and Aiken hasn't been able to stay on the court, and it's it's just a shame. And you feel horrible for Bryce. You know he's had he's had a knee injury at Harvard, and then he had a foot injury at Harvard, and then he had a knee problem when he came to Seton Hall, and then he injured his ankle in non-contact in the opening against Louisville. And then he re-injures the ankle, you know, against Creighton, and it's innocuously just cutting. Most of the time when guys injure ankles, it's because they're leaping and they're landing awkwardly. He's running, stepping on a foot. I mean, it happens 50 times in a game probably. So it's just it's just a freakish thing. The guy's got horrible luck, and I don't think he's finished. I, I'm hearing, like, people, fans thinking he's – I don't think he's finished. It's an ankle. It's going to be a few weeks. They're going to take their time with him and hopefully get him back on board in February and for the stretch run. In the meantime, it has to be Shahar Reynolds. Jahari Long, who they love Jahari Long, Seton Hall's coaches. When he got here, they were so impressed with him, they thought immediately he would be a contributor. And then, you know, as things happened, he sort of fell behind when they had the COVID break in November, and he hasn't really been able to get on the court. The times he's been on the court, he has, he has, he's looked like he struggled. Not counting garbage time last night, I'm talking meaningful minutes. It's looked like he struggled. So they're going to have to play him, or they're going to have to let Mamu or, or to call Molson handle the ball in relief for Reynolds. So Reynolds, a great story. I think he'll continue to do really good things. He had a rough game against Creighton. It happens. Even Miles Powell had rough games. Um, but, you know, they're going to need to give him some ball handling relief, and that's why Kevin Willard gets paid the big bucks. He's going to go into the lab and figure out how that's going to work. You bring up Jahari Long, and we're talking to Jerry Torino of the Asbury Park Press in New Jersey covering Seton Hall and Rutgers. We're talking some Pirates basketball here. Jahari Long, an incoming freshman point guard, now 
going to be thrust into a backup spot and more of a prominent reserve role. You mentioned that Kevin Willard, and I think it was after the Penn State game that he mentioned in his post-game radio interview with Gary Cohen how he wanted to bring him along further, but the COVID shutdown had really hindered his progress. What does he bring to the table that can allow him to overcome being thrown into the fire so soon and so untimely? He's a big physical guard, right? So Reynolds is not a big guy, Uh, although he defends really well and he's tough. Long is bigger, physical, and he's more of a pure point guard, you know, whereas Reynolds is more of a combo guard. So he does have things that Seton Hall doesn't really have at the point guard position. It's just that he just lacks seasoning. And so the whole thing that's weird about this year, and we saw we saw this with Rutgers freshman too, is that you play a, a 10 or 11 or, you know, 13-game non-conference schedule so you can get, give guys seasoning when the stakes are lower. That was largely stripped out of this season. Seton Hall played, what, two guarantee games? And so they didn't have the opportunity to get along that, that on-court seasoning. I don't know if he's going to be able to catch up. I think the best you can probably hope for him at this point this year is for him to play some hold the fort minutes. I don't know that he's going to just magically elevate the team. It's just too much to ask. And like I said, I think he's going to be good. They think he's going to be good. But the way this COVID season has gone, you just that's not a – you can't wait for that ship to come in. They're going to have to just go with what they got. And Jahari Long will be seeing a little more of a role and making more of an impact. You look at the Seton Hall team, Jerry, and Kevin Willard switched the lineup in an attempt to combat Creighton's matchups. Tukal Molson got his first start of the year in place of Ike Obiadu. You look at what Tukal Molson has brought since transferring from Canisius, where he was the MAC rookie of the year on a first-team all-conference talent as a sophomore, sat out last year. So he knew Kevin Willard's system and his style of play, and he, he's fit in as somewhat of a sixth man, a player who can guard the two, three, and four at his height, a legit six, six, and capable of giving you anywhere between 10 and 15 points per game. How much of an X factor has he been? Has he exceeded the expectations from the coaching staff? And what about him just really jumps out most to someone who hasn't seen enough of this Seton Hall team, the where he fits in. The junkyard dog, Jay. I love that nickname. The junkyard dog. Willard told me that last year. He said he's a junkyard dog. And I've been using it. I, I hope it sticks. That's what the way he plays. I see I see some Quincy McKnight in, in Tacom also. Now, people are going to say, oh, you're nuts. What they're not going to remember is Quincy McKnight, you know, it, it took a while for him to get up to speed. Like, granted, they, they plugged him in as a starter immediately when after his sit-out year, but it took him a while to become the Quincy McKnight that Seton Hall fans are going to fondly remember. Uh, and so Molson's, you know, he's on that learning curve now. I mean, he has similar attributes. He's a combo guard who is physical, tough, aggressive, can't really shoot, um, better attacking the team, getting junk points, uh, you know, playing the passing lanes and Scrapping for rebounds, that's that was McKnight. Now, McKnight elevated that to a high art as a senior uh, and maybe down the stretch of his junior year, and, and Molson's not there yet, but I see a similar arc from him coming from that mid-major level uh, where he was the guy being more of a, a role-player guy. So I think he's about what he's about what Seton Hall and coaches expected. He's about what I expected, and he's a piece. He's a role-player. He's... He's a glue guy. You know, I don't know if he's going to be a star, but he can help you win. So um, he's going to continue to get better as they as they get more time under under the belt here. He's, is he ever going to run the offense the way McKnight eventually evolved into that player? I don't – probably not. But he's going to contribute a lot as a, as a combo guard, uh, energy guy off the bench. There's no doubt about it. Look, Kevin has admitted at the end of games. That's what you need to know, right? He's been in at the end of these games and he's played well. And this is another question I wanted to ask you, Jerry, having been around Seton Hall for so long. You look at Ike Obiadu this year, and you look at Tyree Samuel this year, and how the two of them have stepped up. And I made this point during the Xavier game, and I think I did it somewhere else along, along the line during this season, that Kevin Willard seems to be getting from Obiadu and from Samuel 
what he got last year from Romaro Gill and Jared Roden. Roden making the jump freshman to sophomore. He's made an even bigger one sophomore to junior, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But do you get a similar vibe in terms of the progression from Obiadu and Samuel, almost like what Gill and, and Roden brought that team? I don't think they're there yet. I would not draw those parallels <clears throat> yet. Uh, I do. Ike has gotten better from last year. He, he's, he's progressing clearly under the tutelage of Grant Billmeyer. He shoots his free throws better. He's a better offensive player. Uh, he makes more of his chances around the basket. And he's been better defensively. Uh, he's been out of place less. Position-wise, he's been better. You know, he's just not a very good rebounder. Part of that is because he tries to block shots. He's never going to have a jump shot. I don't think the way Rowe developed that little hook shot and that little shot, you know, within that six to eight foot shot. I don't know if he's going to get that. Although he's shooting free throws better, like I said. So he has gotten better. I mean, Roe Gill was a very good Big East center last year. I would not put Obiagu in that category. He's only a junior. He's got another year. So I do think he is trending in the direction, but he's not there yet. But, you know, he does have one of the best big men coaches in the league in Grant Billmeyer, which helps. Regarding Tyrese Samuel, I thought Samuel struggled the most of any player in Seton Hall's rotation over the first month of the season. Uh, he, he did not play well defensively. Uh, I thought he took shots outside the flow of the offense. Uh, he just didn't seem to be comfortable in the first month. Now, he has played better over the last couple games. He has, I thought, uh, known when to attack and when to pass better. Uh, his defense has been better. No one defended well against Creighton. And he's rebounded better. So he, he's asserted himself physically better, and he's, he's thought the game better over the last few games. He's coming. I mean, he's a sophomore, but he's got a lot of talent. Physically, he's a specimen. He has a versatile type game that is tantalizing. Uh, he just he has a way to go with the game. I think, you know, mentally and maturity wise, and he's taken some steps. So I think he's headed in the right direction. Roden was probably a little ahead of that curve last year. Is my thinking is he's obviously blossomed into a really good player now, Roden. But Samuel has very very high ceiling. But I think he does have some more steps to take before I'm going to say he's going to be as good as Jared Roden. But he certainly has the potential to be. Talking to Jerry Carino of the Asbury Park President, New Jersey, covering Seton Hall and Rutgers. We'll stay with the Pirates here, and we'll get into the big three of this group. Sandro Mamoukalashvili has been everything you'd want him to be and more so far for the Pirates this year, a revelation and turning himself into a legitimate professional player with a a very promising pro future, be it overseas or in the NBA. Jared Roden has stepped up and been the Robin the mom who's Batman more often than not this year. And you can't overlook Miles Kale in his senior season, averaging double figures a game and being the third man and getting comfortable in his role on offense and defense. Jerry, when you look at the Seton Hall big three, where would you match them up against some, some of the other more powerful and potent groups in the league. And what can you say about all three of them thus far? And how much more do you think they have room to grow before they're done? Yeah, they're, they're as good as, they're as good as any, any, uh, any top three in the league or close to it, probably maybe not Villanova. Uh, but yeah, the, those three guys are good. Uh, Kale has surprised me the most. Uh, you know, Kevin had said all along that, look, he's going to, he just needs, he just needs the, he needs space to spread his wings, which I always took to interpret as he just was in the Miles Powell's shadow, okay? And he has he has done much better this year, being more consistent. He's always been a pretty good defender. He's been a very good defender this year. Uh, he shot the ball well. And, he, you know, he's had a good season. He surprised me. Kevin was right. Uh, he was ready to he was ready to take the next step up without being out of Powell's shadow. So Good job by him. He's a good. He's a good dude. Uh, he's, you know, he's the type of guy you'd be proud to be your son, and uh, it's nice to see him achieving consistent success on the court. The other two guys, I knew this was coming for Jared Roden. 
another another we talked development before with uh steve pike and Rutgers. jared roden is just a monument to development three-star player coming from maybe a not so high profile high school situation and he's just he's a terrific college player the next seat all star you know when mamu moves on i think he'll be a first round draft pick nba draft pick this year you know in 2021 when mamu moves on this will be Jared Roden's team. He's ready to be the next Seattle star. So I, I, th- I saw this coming. I felt like I saw it last year. Uh, and again, a monument to development and just a great, great, I call him kid. He's a man, great young man. Mamu is, you know, he's a star. He's the next guy. He's this, he's the star now. It's his team. He's having a terrific year. Some teams are going to take him away. And for the most part, he's been very good about getting teammates involved when that happens. So he's an all-league, all-Big East type player. Um, so, yeah, Seton Hall has all the pieces. They, they, they need the point guard depth. That's the question. They have all the other pieces as far as the, the seniority, the experience, the balance, the toughness, uh, the ability to do to make the NCAA tournament. And then once you're there, I feel like Seton Hall, just get into the tournament. They're due for a decent draw. They've had such bad luck with March. Forget about well, last season getting canceled. You know, getting shipped to Gonzaga uh, to play Gonzaga in the high up to Denver after winning a Big East tournament. I mean, that was a terrible, terrible draw. Um, they're due, you know, Seton Hall is due for a, a, a break in the, in the draw. So just get in, and I think this team has the pieces to get in. There's no question in my mind. We're talking to Jerry Torino, New Jersey, Hoops Haven, Gannett, New Jersey, Asbury Park Press does it all in the Garden State. And we're going to open the window a little bit beyond the Pirates and the Starlet Knights and go a little bit more around New Jersey and some of the other programs in the area, some of the exciting storylines in Garden State basketball. What has taught your eye when you look at the St. Peter's, the Monmouth, NJIT, Princeton types? What have you seen from the mid-majors in Jersey that has really stood out? So you, you know the MAC better than anybody, Jaden. But, you know, and we always joke about how the MAC is – so hard to predict, and obviously it is. Mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, I, St. Peter's struggling a little bit. Um, you know, Siena comes out of the cold and then and then sweeps Mammoth. I mean, they hadn't played a game. That was super impressive. I think Mammoth's pretty good. Uh, they could beat anybody at any night. Can they put it together to win the league? I don't know. Iona obviously is lurking. You know, they're going to be they're going to be real good at the end of the year with Rick Pitino. They've had their moments. So Riders rebuilding. It's a down year for them. Uh, they're reloading. They lost a big, a big group of contributors that won a lot of games. But I, to me, I, I thought St. Peter's would be right at the top of the league, and they still could be. But this is the ebb and flow of the season, you know, and they've had some difficult challenges too with COVID. This is a, a commuter campus. So even things like just getting, making sure guys have access to the cafeteria and meals, like these are things think about but you know that's that's part of 2021 half of it is beating the virus in the situations uh but yeah that's that catches my attention uh and then as far as njit they're in the right place the america east really just the play of the year so far and they went up in vermont like san antonio brinson challenging uh channeling lorenzo charles uh with a putback at the buzzer and that was fun. So I like NJIT where they are. They can be a factor in the American East. They're going to get better as they get more acclimated to that league. Uh, and they have some good young talent, too. Dylan O'Hearn's having a good year, a really good year for them. Transfer player. And, uh, you know, obviously, uh, Zach Cooks is one of, is an all-league type of guy. So I like it, what I've seen from NJIT. FTU's in a COVID pause now. Uh, probably a struggle, a little bit of a struggle for them at the start. We all thought they'd win that league. Difficult start for them, but a lot of ball left. So, still have a lot of faith that uh, that they'll get it together once they get through all the things they're having, the problems they're having now. I'm sad for Princeton, uh, Jake. It's a real good Princeton team, top two, three Ivy League team, could have contended for the title, and uh, we'll never know because because the Ivy League, you know, put the balls away for the year. Which look, I don't, I can, I'm not going to question in leagues or institutions' choices. But it's just saddening, and I feel really sad for those players. I think we're sure what we're seeing is it's doable. You know, it's doable to play college basketball in this pandemic. 
and I just feel bad that those guys don't get the chance. And I do wish that, that Princeton would allow postgrads so guys don't have to transfer out after they graduate. The Ivy League, I think, lifted the cap on that, but the university has not. And so, you know, Princeton's losing some good players, and it's really sad for them, for, for Mitch Henderson, and for, uh, for the program and their fans. Yeah, it's a really tough break for the Tigers, and we'll stay with the mid-majors a little bit here and talk a little more about someone that you and I both know in depth, and that's Shaheen Holloway, the job that he's done at St. Peter's now in his third season, getting this team to within one game of a regular season championship last year, being named the coach of the year, and rightfully so when you look at what he's done. This team that he has at St. Peter's, Jerry, they always say a team is a reflection of its coach's demeanor, and you see that from the Peacocks, they play with no fear. They are unfazed by the big moment or anybody in front of them. They play like it's a national championship game every time out. And what impresses me and impressed me a lot last year, the bulk of this team, now sophomores and juniors, this year with Casey Nadefo and Fusini Drame, there's a little more of a, of a standout scorer. But last year, getting six players to not average double figures and still finish – 14 and six in conference. What can you say about the job that he's done and his preparation, his pedigree that has got him to this stage and primed to do more? I'm not really surprised. I mean, no, no one who followed Seton Hall basketball should be surprised. Shaheen, Red, Shaheen Holloway was totally ready to be a head coach. Uh, he had a big hand in, in reviving the program under Kevin Willard. Uh, everybody knows he can recruit. I mean, he brought Miles Powell in. He took him under his wing. Kadeen uh, Carrington. So, but so that so that's and we knew he could recruit, but the guy can coach too. I mean, he helped develop some of these guards at Seton Hall uh, under along with Kevin Willard, two two guards as ex guards as coaches, and he you know he's a good coach. So he's done a very good job. Uh, he's quickly turned around a program that in a tough place. I mean, John Dunn did. We we both think the world of what John Dunn did there. But, you know, John left, and it was a total rebuild. So uh, Shaheen's done that pretty quickly. Okay, you ready? Mm -hmm. All right. So... You know, we always knew Shaheen could recruit, but I knew he could coach. Uh, we saw the development in the players at Seton Hall under his wing. Miles Powell, Kadeen Carrington, uh, Madison Jones, Quincy McKnight. Uh, you know, there's a long list. So the thing with Shaheen is what you're seeing, what he's doing that's really remarkable is he's getting a buy-in from these guys to, to, who aren't really playing a ton of minutes. You know, he's going to deep rotation to keep the intensity up, to play a high-octane, aggressive offense and defense. And that's good coaching. That takes coaching to get buy-in to that level, to get everyone to play their role at that level. That's what he's done a really good job of. Uh, let's not forget that uh, this team is, is sophomore-driven. A lot of freshmen last year, a lot of sophomores now, big chunk of his rotation. So – there's going to be consistency issues. And I think that's what we're seeing now, but big picture. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's loading for bear. This team's, this program's on a, is, the arrow is totally pointing up. But let me ask you something, Jade, as an observer of the back closer than anybody in the media, uh, how much does the back-to-back -back games have a negative impact on, on the top teams in the league, the favorites, because it's so hard to beat a team two days in a row, I would imagine that probably is almost an equalizer. You tell me, does that make it harder for the St. Peter's of the world? So far, it looks it looks like it's about even, honestly. You, you see an edge going to the team that loses game one more often than not. Siena came back and beat Monmouth by 14 in game two, and they were the unanimous pick to win the MAC. So St. Peter's bounced back off a loss to Monmouth in game one and then beat the Hawks in game two in West Lawn Branch, it's really matchup driven. I do think teams are adjusting to it. And the deeper teams like a Monmouth, like a St. Peter's, maybe a Manhattan when 
Steve Massiello and the Jaspers can get rolling again. And Anthony Nelson, by the way, who we both know very well, is the leading scorer on that team. And he's in the top five in the conference, producing at a high level and starting after being in the shadow of Quincy McKnight for two years at Seton Hall. It really just depends on the matchup and how well you can manage your depth in game one and game two. There's really no noticeable difference other than the game two winners are usually the game one losers. Okay, that's interesting because uh, I did wonder if it would impact the favorites because it's so hard to beat a team two days in a row, no matter who you are. But what I'll say is, uh, you know, I thought I thought St. Peter's would, would win the MAC this year, um, but and they still might. But there's obviously a learning curve there with the sophomores, and uh, you know, but Shaheen in general is just doing a fantastic job. The guy can coach basketball more than a recruiter. That's what I would say about him, and I think that's what everyone's learning about him. We're talking to Jerry Carino, Asbury Park Press Unit, New Jersey, talking New Jersey hoops. And before we let you go, Jerry, we'll hit you up for some predictions for Saturday's action in the two high major New Jersey programs. Rutgers gets the rematch with Ohio State, 12 o'clock at the rack. Buckeyes defeated the Starlet Knights in Columbus after Miles Johnson fouled out on a questionable fourth and fifth call. Hopefully Bo Borowski's not on the whistle in Piscataway if you're a Scarlet Knights fan. I think they're about as fed up as they can be. Ohio State and Chris Holtman were ranked earlier in the season. What do you expect from that game, Jerry, and who do you think wins? I expect the Rutgers win. Uh, look, Ohio State is tough, physical, well-coached. That's what you have to be to, to beat Rutgers. Okay? No team that's not tough and physical is beating Rutgers. It's not happening. Mentally tough, physically tough. Ohio State has those things, but Rutgers owes him some payback. And even though the rack is not the rack this year, one thing we've noticed is that in the Big Ten, it looks like the Big Ten, which is some, maybe the, the number one league for home court advantages, um, the winning percentages are about the same as they were last year. So it's almost like it's a state of mind rather than the fans, you know, rather than the noise. It's a state of mind being home. And Rutgers played so well at home, even though they won in their loss at home this year, they played a great game against Iowa. So I think Rutgers will win this game. They owe them some payback. I'm sure they're going to play much better after being embarrassed at Michigan State. I expect Rutgers to win this game. It'll be a decent game. I don't think it'll be a nail biter. I like Rutgers, you know, by a couple of possessions. Um, Seton Hall and DePaul, look, Seton Hall's better than DePaul. Seton Hall's played a lot more games than DePaul. Uh, they should beat DePaul, but Seton Hall has had a history of difficult outings uh, up there in in uh, the Windy City. Uh, I know the DePaul's building has changed over the years, but they've had a difficult outing there. I, so they're going to have to play well. I don't think they're just going to be able to show up and win. Uh, I think they will figure out a way to grind out a win there. I don't think they'll blow them out, although they're much better. I do think they'll get them at home by a lot. I don't know the up there. It's a, it's a road week, you know. It's tough. The road's tough anyway. Now with all the COVID protocol, traveling's tough. So I do think Seton Hall will win. I don't. I don't think they'll run away with it. I think they'll have to grind it out, kind of like they did against Butler last weekend. So I do think it'll be a two and zero day for the locals and back to back games. I know I'll be busy. At two o'clock tip off from the Wintrust Arena in Chicago and the Rutgers Seton Hall back to back. Jerry, I do have to ask you this before we go. You and I have done most of the season from home. I think there's maybe been one, maybe two games you've been on site for. What's the, the difference like covering from home and being able to get both teams on, on a day like Saturday and days earlier in the year where you have Rutgers and Seton Hall? What's that like? Well, the one advantage to covering the games from home is that other than I get to wear shorts uh, and don't have to pay tolls, <laughs> is that I get to do both teams. Like, I don't have to pick when they're playing on the same day. I get to do both teams as long as the games aren't occurring simultaneously. And there's been several of these back-to-backs, especially on Saturdays. Everyone plays on Saturdays. So, yeah, in the past, I would have had to have chosen a game um, to cover. I mean, I would have gone to the rack when they're home. But, uh, like, like last Saturday with, with, with uh, Iowa at the rack and, and uh, Butler at the rock, I would have had to have picked a game at home I could do both so that's nice I miss being in the building I did go to the opener at Rutgers I may go 
to one or two more games this year, but it's just not the same. And there's just not a lot of reason to go, Jaden. I mean, there's no crowd. There's no atmosphere. The access is all virtual. There's no in-person access. And, you know, you don't get it. You don't get to see replays when you're there. Um, so you kind of kind of lost in a vacuum almost. It's almost a disadvantage to be there. So you do get to see some things, but you're far away. There's no courtside access this year. You know, you're far away. So, so it's not the same, and it's just it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for me to go through the protocol and to do the traveling um, when this when I'm. It's actually a disadvantage to be there, and it pains me to say that. That said, I might pop my head into a game or two down the road, uh, and I certainly love to go to the NCAA tournament in Indianapolis to drive out there, rent a car, but. At home, yeah, I get to, I do get to do both teams, uh, so I get that. I do get to see the replays, which I don't normally get the, to do when I'm in the arena. And I, it's interesting to me to hear. I like hearing what the what the analysis is. When good, when you get a good analyst, you know, like a Raf or like a like a Stephen Bardo uh, or or a um, Steve Lapis. I like to hear what they're saying. I don't normally you don't normally get that when you're in the building, so. So there are things about home that's been okay. Now, when it's time to go back and these games are, you know, back to normal, I'll definitely enjoy being back, that's for sure. Yeah, I, I can totally relate to, you know, saving money commuting from where I am in Queens. As those of you who follow me know, I, t- I take the train pretty much everywhere. And the advantage there is saving money and being able to do double and triple headers. I, I used to hate doing one or the other with St. John's and Seton Hall or now Rutgers that I've been more of a presence at the rack. So I can totally relate to that. Jerry Carino, Asbury Park president, New Jersey. Nobody has a closer or faster finger on the pulse of Garden State Hoops. Jerry, thank you so much again for coming on and being a part of the newly endeavored Daily Dose of Hoops podcast. We'll talk again. I really appreciate having me on and we we will talk many times over the next two months. Absolutely, Jerry. Always good hearing from you.